2: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Hello and welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Joe McCormick. My co-host Robert Lamb would normally be here with me, but he is out on the day that I'm recording this. So today's episode is going to be solo. We read back listener Mail every Monday, So if you would like to get in touch, go ahead and give it a shot. You can reach us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind dot com. All types of messages are welcome, but we uh, especially appreciate feedback to recent episodes if you have something fascinating to add to a topic we have talked about. I'm going to kick things off today with responses to our series on the illusion of control, which is a psychology concept, a type of cognitive illusion, in which, in many cases, people believe they have more control over outcomes than they actually do. Uh, and this first message comes from Lauren. Lauren says Hi, Robin Joe. This response pertains to the comment made about light switches and cookies in the kitchen. Uh, Yeah, so for context, this was something that came up in part three of the series when we were talking about magical thinking and its relationship to control heuristics, which are mental shortcuts we use to judge whether we had influence over an outcome or not. And Rob was talking about how even normal direct physical causation can feel kind of alien uh, and maybe even kind of magical if we don't recall consciously willing an action before doing it. And the example was absentmindedly turning on a light when you go into the kitchen at night for a cookie. So you flip the switch as you enter the room, but it could suddenly occur to you, I don't remember intending to do that. The control heuristic doesn't really give you the green check because you did take the action and the outcome happened, but you don't remember consciously intending the outcome in advance. Uh, Anyway, back to Lauren's message. In the single room restroom at work, they took out the light switch near the entrance two months ago and replaced it with a flat piece of plastic to cover the electrical gap. They installed sensor lights that automatically go on when you enter. This irked me for two reasons. Uh, First, I didn't like no longer having control over whether the light was on or off, and I felt mildly insulted uh, that my freedom of choice had been taken from me. Did they not trust us to decide? The second reason the whole situation annoys me is the fact that I still lift my hand to turn on the light upon entry, every time, even when the lights are flickering their way on as I move my arm. Maybe humans, led by a pervasive, occasionally subconscious desire for control and an inability to cope with the loss or lack of it, delude themselves into believing they have it. Thanks for making an extremely interesting and enjoyable podcast. Lauren. Uh, well, thank you so much, Lauren. Uh, yeah, as for automatic lights in the bathrooms, I don't know. I can see exactly what you're saying, but I would kind of feel like that's got to be more hygienic, right? You, you're forced to touch fewer things while you're in the bathroom. I don't know. Uh, so, yeah, the idea that some amount of the illusion of control is driven by wishful thinking or by a desire for control is something that came up casually in these episodes, but was not explored as like a major hypothesis in the literature that we were looking at. Um, So the main explanatory models we talked about were Ellen Langer's uh, skill chance confusion hypothesis, and then Suzanne Thompson's favorite hypothesis of the uh, imprecise control heuristic, what I was just talking about a minute ago. So remember the The control heuristic was the idea that we usually make judgments of whether we can control an outcome or not by using a shortcut that asks a few questions, and those questions would be, did I intend an outcome? Did I take an action? Did I get the intended outcome, or at least in part or intermittently? And was the action connected in some way, most often by temporal proximity, you know, the There's a time relationship. Was the action connected to the outcome? And if these criteria are met, we usually think we had control over the outcome. And this system works fine most of the time, but it can get us really confused when results are mixed or when the connection between action and outcome is ambiguous, uh, especially in contrived artificial scenarios with hidden mechanisms of causation and manipulative patterns of feedback like a slot machine. And I think in the episode Rob and I both Thought it seemed like the control heuristic explanation made a lot of sense, and there's there's pretty good evidence for it. But also, it's absolutely true that illusions of control could arise from a combination of different factors, and uh, confusions of the control heuristic might be only one part of the equation. Wishful thinking or a desire for control could play a part as well, and that would dovetail nicely with some experimental findings that we did talk about in the episode, such as the finding that people who are highly motivated to get a certain outcome show more illusions of control over the process of getting that outcome. So the example we talked about would be if you enter a lottery and the prize is a sandwich— People who are currently hungry apparently show more illusions of control over the lottery than people who aren't hungry. So I definitely think you're on to something with the hypothesis that in some situations, wishful thinking or motivated reasoning could play a part in causing these illusions. Uh, and I guess that's to invoke a cliche. Uh, more research is needed. Be good to see more studies on that. Anyway, thank you, Lauren. All right. This next message is from Anna. Anna says, hello, Robert, Joe, and JJ. In your first episode about the illusion of control, you talked about the buttons that you press to cross the road. I just wanted to mention the brilliant design of the crosswalk buttons in Australia. They are specially designed for people with different abilities. They're positioned at a level so that people in wheelchairs can press them. The button is a large silver button that is easy to press so people with arthritis can easily press them. This is also helpful if your hands are full because you can press it with your elbow. Also, they make a special noise when it's time to cross. This is for people who are vision impaired. When you're waiting, there's a slow beeping, and when you cross, there is a fast trill of beeps. I think some of these are now implemented in other countries, but from memory, they were invented in Australia. I seem to remember an article praising Australian innovation and inclusiveness that mentioned these buttons. Uh, yeah. And in, uh, in the in the States, we have some crosswalks that have uh, setups basically like this, but uh, not all crosswalks are like that. You know, it it varies and it goes on. I also wanted to mention a tangential topic related to the illusion of control, which is the idea that if you have one piece of good luck, somehow that luck will continue and you need to harness that luck because it will only last a short time. Like if you have a particular piece of luck, like you get a very good parking space, someone will say something like, you should go out and buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> I guess this could also be chalked up to the idea of good omens. uh And she specifies not the excellent book by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. This can be a good thing, say, if you're going to a job interview and you park on a street that has the name of your best friend or uh, a particularly lucky sounding name. You will feel this is a sign. Then you will be more relaxed and confident in the interview, and that will increase your chances of getting the job. Anyway, thanks for all the great work, Anna. Well, thank you, Anna. Uh, Yeah, I totally agree. I think uh, much like with the beneficial side of the illusion of control, little lucky feelings like this can be a net positive in our lives, even if they are, strictly speaking, illusions and not predictive of external outcomes. Uh, So we talked about this uh, a little bit in the episodes, and, and I would stand by this idea I think it can be a good thing sometimes for people to wear their lucky charm, even though I don't believe that lucky charms are literally efficacious in changing your luck. So I don't believe... The charm would change the external chances of a good or bad outcome. The thing it probably actually does is help you regulate your emotions, which in turn could actually lead to a better outcome, Like just like the example you give. So if you go into a job interview more relaxed and confident because you are wearing your lucky charm, this could literally improve the impression you make and your chances of getting the job, even though the, the lucky charm isn't actually magic. It's just helping you control your own feelings and your own behavior behavior so i I think that's a great point anna uh thanks for getting in touch this next message still about the illusion of control is from renata renata says hi joe and rob one of my job responsibilities is testing software and the illusion of control crops up all the time in my work One thing I've encountered several times and seen others get stuck on too is trying to figure out the elaborate steps it takes to reproduce a bug when the bug in fact occurs due to factors that are not in my control. For example, there might be a bug that only happens at a certain interval or after a delay because of system processing time. But what sometimes I end up doing is coming up with totally irrelevant steps that just happen to take the exact amount of time you need to wait to see the bug. Another example is similar to an elevator door close button, where we may introduce a button knowing that it doesn't do much, but it makes users feel more in control. For example, a button that refreshes information, even though it automatically refreshes every few seconds. Um, The illusion of control also reminds me of the self-help industry. Manifestation and the Law of Attraction prey on a combination of the illusion of control and confirmation bias. I think the authors you cited who critiqued the illusion of control are probably right that as humans we are generally bad— at knowing the probability of an outcome, and therefore we estimate our control incorrectly. But the illusion of control is apparently much easier to exploit than the illusion of non-control, so it ends up being a bias we see in the real world that causes harm more often. And then uh, Renata ends the message with some kind words about the show and by attaching a picture of a couple of uh, pet rats. Uh, I got to say, these rats are very cute in the picture. They're kind of, they're kind of smooshed together on top of each other. So uh, I'm trying to figure out, are they like cuddling or are they, they climbing over one another to get your attention? Unclear. Uh, Let's see Uh, regarding your comments about illusions of control. um, So with, With illusions of control and beliefs about manifestation or uh, the law of attraction or other types of magical thinking, this got me wondering where the line is between the normal, healthy, empowering optimism and feelings of self-efficacy that we talked about, uh, which may in some cases even encompass what are objectively illusions— Maybe thinking you have a bit more control over an outcome than you actually do. Where is the line between that and these beliefs in things like manifestation, or whatever you would call a theory of literal psychic control over outcomes, which In most cases, I would judge the latter, personally, to be not just mistaken, but fairly toxic, associated with the just world fallacy, uh, just generally bad epistemic values and and connections to other uh, false belief formation and so forth. uh, Maybe it's just a matter of degree, like how strong are your illusions of control, but I'm a little bit tempted to think— there's a there's a qualitative difference here, and not just a quantitative one. I kind of wonder if it is literally the presence of a model or uh, or a concept like manifestation or the law of attraction or whatever it is, an externally socially validated model that explains and justifies the workings of this principle, and the existence of this socially reinforced model can turn normal healthy, motivating, empowering minor illusions of control into full-blown delusions with all of these toxic consequences. I don't know. That's just a guess. Uh, And I'd be curious what listeners think. Like, how do you go from minor illusions of control that are mostly harmless for, you know, for the most part and can help us achieve our goals? How do you go from that to thinking that you can literally will yourself to win the lottery if you just focus and, and stay positive? I think that that's actually a very consequential question uh, about the thing about software testing. Uh, I don't know if I've ever considered this before, but yeah, software testing and bug hunting could function like a really devious Skinner box where the trigger for the bug is not clear and consistent. Uh, it's been a while since I, I read the history of the the operant conditioning research. So I hope I'm remembering this correctly. But what I recall is that Conditioning is pretty straightforward when the reinforcement is consistent, you know, so the the rat presses a button, it gets a food pellet. It's the same type of food pellet every time it learns to press the button when hungry. But the the uh, the variation was that you could really drive test animals crazy and make them addicted to the conditioned behavior by inserting some randomness and unpredictability into the reward allocation, giving us the notion of intermittent variable rewards, which are little rewards, little fleeting bursts of pleasure uh, that come at variable time intervals or variable levels of quality uh, with a somewhat Ambiguous relationship to your inputs, so it's not hundred percent predictable which of your inputs will produce the best reward and and with what reliability. Uh, and intermittent variable rewards are what you get on slot machines or on your social media app of choice. And this is we, we've talked about this on the show before. It's been several years now, but. This is one of the reasons I had to pretty much completely get off of social media years ago. Uh, I know it, it works for some people, but but for me, I realized it was just way too addictive, way too easy for it to completely monopolize my time and attention. And while it had control of my attention, it was busy rapidly installing malware on my brain. So <laughs> I I don't want to be you know, uh, too preachy uh, as the the anti-social media guy. And I'm sure lots of people do genuinely have a healthier relationship with it. But I had to get off, and I'm extremely glad I did. Uh, And if you find yourself having the same kind of relationship with it that I did, I would recommend the same. But anyway, uh, thank you so much, Renato. Very interesting email. A lot to think about. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy.
1: My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way
0: she needed to be taken care of.
1: And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: That's right.
0: All right, this next message is from Calvin. Calvin says, Hello, Rob, Joe, and JJ. Greetings from Chicago. I've been listening to the show daily for several years, starting with the episode on the first monster or about the Lohenmensch. Uh, Yeah, it's been a while since we did that episode. Uh, That was where we talked about this uh, truly fascinating 35,000 year old mammoth ivory artifact. It's a little statuette from Paleolithic Germany called the Lohenmensch, which means lion man or lion person. And we were talking about it because it appears to depict a human body with a lion head. And at the time, this was the earliest or one of the earliest known uh, artistic depictions of a creature not existing in nature. And this led to us talking more generally about the idea of when and how it was that humans first imagined not just existing predators, but synthetic monsters, predators purely of the imagination. Uh, based often on combinations of of pieces of anatomy from other creatures, I should flag that I think I've read in the meantime since that episode that there's some dispute about whether the lowen Minch is best interpreted as a human body with a lion head, or maybe um, whether maybe it's supposed to depict something else like a bear or something more strictly found in nature. I don't know the answer there, but whatever this particular artifact is based on. It's obviously not the first time in history some human imagined a monster. It would just be like our first uh, extant piece of evidence for it. And the historical emergence of an imaginative capacity to dream up non-existent beings and creatures is a really, really interesting subject to me. Like, where does that capacity come from? What powers it? Anyway, back to Calvin's message. Uh, Calvin says, uh, you've given me so much great content that helped me get through many boring work days. I'm glad to hear that, Calvin. So Calvin says, "Uh, I've never really felt like I had anything to contribute or write in about until I was listening to the Illusion of Control series. My experience with the Illusion of Control comes from playing the original Pokemon Red, Blue, Green games as a child. It was a well-known, quote, fact among my friend group that if you threw a Pokeball and uh, pressed and held the B button at the precise moment the Pokeball hit, you would greatly increase the chances of a successful capture. Now I know the chances of catching a Pokemon is uh, is really just a dice roll with modifiers for various statistics of the Pokemon, but at the time, I pressed B every time. And if the Pokemon broke out of the ball, it was because I didn't time it right. Even after realizing that this wasn't really part of the game mechanic, I still pressed to be every time for a long while, even when playing later generation games. It just never felt right to not press it. Uh, it was like I just couldn't leave it to chance if there was even the slightest possibility that I was having some kind of impact. Anyway, I just want to thank you for all you do and for giving me a great list of movies from Weird House Cinema. I know a lot of people prefer to watch the movie and then listen to the episode, but I like to listen first and then watch. Hmm. Well, thank you so much, Calvin. Uh, Yeah, the Pokemon thing is a great example. Again, it's like when the mechanisms and the feedback are ambiguous, there's so much room to think we're exerting control when we're not. Uh, So, yeah, thanks, Calvin. Okay, this next message comes from Cindy. It is about our vault episodes on heart removal and heart burial. Cindy says, Hi, Robert and Joe. I thought you'd get a kick out of this. I listened to part one of Because It Is My Heart on February 10th and remembered that it was uh, an earlier aired two part series. So I searched for part two to listen to it again and noticed that I had never finished. I wondered aloud why did I stop partway through the episode? I pressed play and I was immediately transported back to that fateful day, (laughs) almost a year ago exactly, when the vivid description of the most Teutonicus funerary process caused me to press stop. Uh, yeah, so for those who don't remember, and Cindy, I'm very sorry to subject you to this a third time, the mos Teutonicus translates to the German custom, and And it was a solution used in medieval Europe for transporting dead bodies back home from faraway lands. Uh, If, for example, a rich German warrior died while uh, away in the Crusades, untreated, of course, the body would be subject to horrible decomposition during travel. So the German custom was to remove the flesh from the bones before transport back home, sometimes by boiling. Uh, I think we called this uh, making a crusader bone broth in the episode. Uh, And then you would, of course, take the clean bones home to the family crypt. Cindy's message goes on. This time around, I only had to take a break once, but uh, managed to power through the rest of the episode. I can't say it was extremely enjoyable, but it was very enlightening and interesting. Smiley face emoji. Uh, I choose to be boiled in one of my favorite liquids, maple syrup, if that was an option. Uh, Thanks for covering all sorts of topics, even the ones that make us mentally squirm. Keep up the excellent work. Cheers, Cindy. Um, Well, thank you so much, Cindy. Does does maple syrup boil or would it start to kind of like cook and and caramelize? It's it's got a lot of sugar. I don't know how that works. Uh, Yeah, thank you, Cindy. Okay, this very last message is about Weird House Cinema. It's from Andy. Andy says, Hi, Robert and Joe. Love the show. And as always, thank you and your excellent audio producer, JJ, for all the work that goes into it. Your Weird House Cinema episode on Flash Gordon took me back to my youth where I first saw the film on my dad's pirated Betamax cassette. I hadn't watched it in probably 30 years until you inspired me to seek it out again. Just a few minutes in, I saw a familiar face which escaped your analysis. Munson, Dr. Zarkov's beleaguered and rationally fearful associate, was played by William Hootkins, best known as Jack Porkins, hero of the rebellion and the first casualty of the audacious assault on the Death Star Trench. Though I'm not happy about it, I disagreed with your reading of the plane crash scene. This is in Flash Gordon. It seems clear to me that Munson does not escape, and is indeed crushed to death by the airplane as it crashes through his laboratory. I suppose it's his cinematic penance for failing to board Dr. Zarkov's dicey homebrew rocket. Flash and Dale must not have noticed him or else they'd have been far more distraught. Dr. Zarkov, however, is so consumed by his need to see his mission fulfilled that he seems not to care. All in all, it seems an ignominious end for one who gave his life to the cause of galactic freedom. Thanks again, and keep up the good work, Andy. Uh, Thank you for bringing this up, Andy. Yeah, I didn't even think about the actor, though he did look familiar to me. I I didn't make the connection. Uh, But now that I had a chance to go back and peek at his filmography, I realized that William Hootkins is not only Porkins from the original Star Wars, he was also in Raiders of the Lost Ark in one of my favorite scenes. He's one of the the two army intelligence officers who sort of they come to give Indy his mission to retrieve the Ark near the beginning of the movie. I've said this on the show before, but that scene is so good. I think specifically from a screenwriting and filmmaking point of view, it's one of the most efficient and powerful exposition scenes in movie history. So it's like very short, but it quickly and convincingly tells us so much about the characters about the significance of the arc uh, the stakes of the coming conflict it infuses the whole story with the sense of of mystery and power and magic and all that it's great great scene but also i think uh william hootkins is is uh he's the later in the movie he's the guy at the end who assures us that further investigation of the arc has been assigned to top men All right. I think that's going to be it for today's mailbag. Thank you so much to everyone who wrote in. Uh, If you are new to the show, Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science and culture podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we read back listener mail on episodes like this. On Wednesdays, we have a short-form scripted podcast called The Artifact or The Monster Fact, or or maybe even there are new forms emerging. Uh, On Fridays, we do a special series called Weird House Cinema, where we just watch and discuss weird movies, good or bad, well-known or obscure. We do them all. A huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
2: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app.
0: Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com.
2: If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests,